Well, we'll be back into uh, sung worship in just a little while. But last week, we had a little try of doing things a bit different because we thought maybe the summer season, we could have a go at um, something that's perhaps a little risky. Some of you said, wow, you let people just go on the microphone and say whatever they want. That's a bit of a risk, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of, but kind of fun too, isn't it? draws people to the edge of their seats what's going to happen next last week we looked at John 17 the so-called high priestly prayer of Jesus someone asked me uh, just after worship last week where did that come in the chronology of the events around the crucifixion and of course John gives us little clues about the chronology because of course John in writing his gospel is giving us a fresh perspective on a now familiar story. We've got three Gospels already. We've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they've given us a very clear and detailed picture of the work of Jesus in the Northern Territory of Galilee, and to some extent, the work in Jerusalem. John has given us much greater detail of the work of Jesus amongst religious people in Jerusalem and particularly amongst the religious elite. And there, as we see the story unfold in John, giving us this fresh perspective, we see particular elements in the revelation that God wants to bring us that perhaps we wouldn't see otherwise. At the end of chapter 14, Jesus, having just had the conversation over supper, says to the disciples, come, let us leave. So that means that chapter 15, chapter 16, and chapter 17 are all, as it were, on the hoof. So just think about that for a minute. All of that, all of that teaching about the vine and we being the branches and needing to abide in Jesus so that we bear fruit, that's actually taking place as Jesus is walking through the streets of Jerusalem, the crowded streets of Jerusalem where you can smell the, the roasted lamb and the, and the wood fire all across the city. As he, as he comes to the temple, you see this great edifice illuminated by the flames of who knows how many oil lamps. The great candelabra on Temple Mount are illuminating this incredible building overlaid with white marble, inlaid, with gold and silver and in that inlay the picture of Israel the vine that the psalmist says was taken out of Egypt and planted in the land of Canaan and Jesus is speaking about him being the vine and, and the disciples being the branches and then as they pass by the southern part of Temple Mount because basically there's only one way to get to the Garden of Gethsemane from that point Jesus is speaking about what it means to be filled with the Spirit because on the, on the south side of the temple, there are all these bathing pools that were used for the ritual ablution of the Jews, the mikvah baths. This, in a few weeks' time, will be the place, no doubt, where 3,000 people will be baptized on a single day because there's really nowhere else where that could happen. And as Jesus is passing there, he's speaking about the way in which the Spirit will work in, in the disciples' lives. 
And then as he comes to the moment where they will take their step down into the Kidron Valley and then to the other side of the, of the Kidron Valley, the Garden of Gethsemane, where there are trees today which some people believe are actually the same trees that were there at the time of Jesus. They're so old. Olive, olive trees live for a very long time and these particular olive trees in this particular olive grove are incredibly ancient. As Jesus waits to step into the Kidron Valley and go into the Garden of Gethsemane where we know the events that take place there, Jesus prays the high priestly prayer, a prayer about himself and the Father, a prayer about himself and his immediate disciples, a prayer about his immediate disciples, himself and the rest of the world as the new disciples are brought in, this up in out prayer of Jesus that we, that we looked at last week. And one of the things I suggested to you was the things that Jesus was praying for were just like all of the other things that Jesus prayed for. And as far as I could work it out, I couldn't find a single occasion in the scriptures where Jesus prayed for something and he didn't get it. And so if Jesus prays that we know God, then we assume that we can know God. If Jesus prays as he does in the, in the high priestly prayer that we can be unified, then we assume that God has answered that prayer and we can be unified. Jesus prays in that prayer that we're able to be the message carriages, uh, carriages? carriers on his behalf. Well, if he's prayed that, then surely it's possible for that to take place. Now, a couple of you uh, afterwards said, well, wasn't there a prayer just after the high priestly prayer where Jesus prayed for something and he didn't get the answer he was looking for? Take this cup from me. And that's a good question, isn't it? Take this cup from me. But you see, that wasn't the prayer. The prayer was, not my will, but your will. And here's the thing, you see, here's the thing about Jesus. Here's the thing that you notice about Jesus. Today we're going to notice something about his divinity that is amazing. But one of the things that you notice about Jesus is his humanity. Jesus didn't pretend in prayer. He came with just as it was. And as a man, he didn't want to die. And as a man, he didn't want to go through the suffering and the torture of what would lead up to his death. And so, openly and honestly, transparently, vulnerably, he says, I just don't want this. But I want your will more than I want my safety. right after that prayer. It would appear within the chronology that we can put together across all of the Gospels, we encounter the things, the events that we're gonna read about now. Now, there were a couple of things that I learned from last week. One of them was I need to put the microphone closer to the nose of the person who's speaking because we can't hear them. Because they think they're talking to me and of course they're talking to everybody and the millions gathered online not to intimidate anyone but but the other thing uh, that I noticed was it was a long passage last week I mean there's a lot in it wasn't there I mean dear old Gillian she gave us like 19 sermons when she gave us the list of you know which is 
Jillian. No, she said it's me. Yeah, no, I'm fine. But. Well, this week, the, the passage is going to be a little shorter, but we're going to try it again. We're going to do the discovery thing. We're going to find out what it is that God is saying to you today. Yeah? Everybody up for it? Yes. Two people are up for it. That's awesome. <laughs> is everybody up for it? Come on, that's it, that's great. Okay, so uh, let's turn to uh, John 18. Now, I'm going to edit the NIV right now. And the reason I'm going to edit it is, um, is for this reason. For some reason, now, you know, when you're a professional Bible scholar, which not many people are, it's a, you don't get great pay for it. It doesn't have, you know, lots and lots of kind of employment opportunities. When you're a Bible scholar, you tend to look at the Bible from lots of different perspectives. And one of the things that you do is you look at it from the perspective of the original languages. Now, I wasn't very good at Hebrew. It, Hebrew is one of those ones that, for a dyslexic, really messes with you. Because one of the things about a dyslexic is you tend to get your, your, your eye tends to go to the wrong place in the page to start reading. Because in the West, we read from the left to the right. Yeah? I must have been six months into Hebrew and realized, wait. They're reading from the right to the left. No wonder I can't work it out. So, so Hebrew wasn't one of my great ones, but I kind of did okay at Greek. Enough to be able to get by, and certainly enough to be able to dig into the scriptures. And here's the thing. Sometimes the translators of the New Testament try to help us too much. And um, here, here, the translators who are generally very, very good, they translate the word garden in Greek as, gar as olive grove. I'll give you the exact word. The word in Greek is kept. Keros. Keros. So, the, so the, the Greek word that, uh, that we're looking at here is keros. And the only way to translate that is garden. Now I think it's really important that we understand this because one of the things that John does is he gives us little clues and little insights as to what it is that's really going on under the surface if you look. So this word garden, he uses here when Jesus is arrested. And where's the other place? Just in a few chapters time. The word garden. When he's raised from the dead on Resurrection Sunday. And why does he use the word garden? Why is he underlining the word garden? Because you and I members of humanity have been excluded from God's presence because of our falling and failing and that means that we've been excluded from the place called the the garden the garden is a picture of being in the presence of the living God and what begins here under the olive trees in the Kidron Valley is the beginning of you and I 
gaining entrance to the garden again. And so what we, what we see here is, if you like, the garden entrance, darkened by the struggle of humanity's difficulties with, with self-centeredness and, and self-will. And that journey that takes Jesus through the cross, paying the penalty of our alienation and our rebellion, that journey, beginning here in the Garden of Gethsemane, takes him through the cross into a grave dug in a garden, out from the grave, where the first thing the first person thinks that she's seen is a gardener. I thought he was the gardener. Well, he is the gardener. And he's inviting us in. So I'm going to edit as we're walking through this passage. I'm going to read to you uh, the first few verses and then we're going to look at it together. When Jesus had finished praying, he left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you have given me. Okay. So maybe if you were here last week, you, you kind of get the routine. What we're going to do now is we're going to just go through these verses again. We're going to put them up on the screen. And what I'd like you to do, just in quiet, extroverts, that means no talking, just in quiet, we're going to review these verses and simply ask this question. What's the thing that kind of grabs me? What's the thing that's highlighted? What's the thing that seems to be lifted off the page to me? As we go through that, we'll just give God the opportunity to speak to us.
Okay. Now, I'm going to use this microphone when I'm talking up here, but when I'm down there, I'm going to use this one, all right? And we'll see how we get on. What I want you to do right now is I want to turn you to turn to the person near you. You may have come by yourself, so introduce yourself. Just tell them the one thing that you saw. What was the one thing you saw in the text? Just turn to a person right next to you. It's only going to take 30 seconds, so just do it real quick. What's the one thing you saw? Now, if you're sitting by yourself on a pew, you may have to shuffle over. And if you see someone sitting by themselves in the pew, shuffle over to them. Be nice. Yeah, both people spoken. <laughs> Can you hear me breathing through this? Is this quite loud? Let me breathe. No, it's good. Okay. All right. All right. What about it? Maybe we know the routine. I can't make it up into the balcony because we can't really do the sound and the light and the cameras and all of that. So we'll assume that you're doing the same thing as everybody else. Who got something? Anybody? Yeah, right there. I'm coming up. Just tell us your name. Tell us your name and um, tell us what you got. I'm Todd. Hello, Todd. Uh, Christ's words, I am he physically knocked the Pharisees to the ground. Yeah. We like it when the Pharisees get knocked to the ground. We love that. Okay, so we've got, I am he knocking them over. It's kind of cool, isn't it? Eh? Wouldn't you like those kinds of words in your back pocket? What else we got? Sir, tell us your name. Gene, and what struck me, I think verse 7, talking about when the entourage falls backwards in the presence of evil. So he has to re-ask re the question. Okay, see, so, so the entourage falls back. It's not just the Pharisees, it's not just the religious leaders, it's a whole lot. The group of soldiers, Judas, everybody, they all get knocked down. So it's not just picking on the Pharisees, yeah? The whole thing. Yeah, I wish it was just the Pharisees, but you know, that's just me. Come on, Rebecca. You've got to tell us who you are, even though I just said it right then. I'm Rebecca, and for, for me anyway, it was almost like the glory of God came through the words. Okay. So you feel like it was like the, pre the glory of God kind of knocking them down. Now, that's really good because when you look at the word glory, in its original meaning, it means the weight. In Hebrew, the word kavod is the word that's translated into glory in the English. And that actually means the weight. So when it talks about the glory of God, it actually means the weight of his presence. So Rebecca's, see it's amazing, isn't it? You guys have got so much insight. It's like you've been to theological school for the whole of your lives. It's incredible. What else we got? Anybody out in the cheap seats? Oh yeah, come on. I'll make my way over there. I tripped over and Pulled my hamstring out last week. Did you see that? I've been struggling with my hamstring all week because of that. 
Okay, tell us. Uh, my name's Greg. Uh, I was reading it and was thinking that Jesus uh, said, I am he with such authority to knock him down so that he would preserve the disciples so that he would not lose them because he knew how important they were. I love that. So Jesus is using his authority to indicate who's really in charge there. And then when he says, let them go, he's using the same authority so that they can go free. Is that fair, Greg? I think that's exactly, I think that's exactly accurate. What about over, oh, here we go. Here we go. We've got the spiritual luminaries going. Here's Jennifer. You have to tell us who you are, even though I just told them. Hi, I'm Jennifer. Um, I guess I had always understood that him saying, I am he, he's saying the name of God. He's saying who he is. He's saying Yahweh. And so the power of that knocked everyone down. But my question is, why did he say it three times? I know that there are times that things are repeated in three frequently in the Bible, but is that for repetition's sake to get it in their heads, or is it because he's speaking on behalf of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Oh, 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 oh. oh, we've got all kinds of theological speculation going on now. I'm not sure we're allowed that, but I do think we have an, don't you think we should have a round of applause for that one? I mean, it's a big one, that one. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now, really what, what Jennifer's saying there is, is that when, when Jesus says, I am he, again, the translators are struggling to, to put together what it is that's, that's actually being said there because the phrase in Greek is ego eimi. And that is the direct translation of I am. It's the direct translation of the, of the phrase I am which is the revelation of God throughout the whole Old Testament. When he's speaking to Moses, when the Lord is speaking to Moses from the burning bush, he says, I am sends you. And so this is a foundational revelation of who God is. God is saying, I am, meaning I'm not restricted to your time, your space, because I am, not I ha have been or I will be or any other. See, Jennifer, she's a good theologian. Here we go, Cindy. You have to tell them who you are, even though I just told them. Good morning, everyone. I am Cindy. The question that Jesus asks, who is it you want? So that grabbed me because when I think of, if someone approaches me, I think, oh, how may I help you? Or what do you want? But Jesus is getting down to the person of who he is. Who is it you want? Um, and actually, Chad had the same question, brilliant minds think alike. And so what we were thinking was um, the story back at the garden during the fall, it happened at, at the trees in the center. And so in order to reconcile our relationship back to God, we kind of have to go back to the garden, mm -hmm. to that place, yeah. to resolve the conflict that happened. And the tree of life represented a person anyway all along. Yeah. So instead of going back to what, we need to go back to who. Okay, so instead of what is it you want, instead of what is it you want, it's who is it you want. And that's the, that's the big question of life, isn't it? So often we're asking God for what, when really what we need to be asking for is who. Because if we knew the who, then we would almost certainly get the what. Yeah? 
Does that make sense? I think that's kind of a summary of what Cindy said, and there's Doris here as well. Okay, I've got to get this up on the whiteboard at some point, guys. Doris, tell us who you are. I'm Doris, and uh, I just thought that, you know, when the power of Jesus' presence kind of knocked everybody down, that should have been enough for them to change their minds about killing him because it should have convinced them that he was God. And uh, for some people, it doesn't matter what evidence, they're still not willing to believe. All right. All right. Okay. So let me just try and get this stuff up on the board because this is really cool. So um, we had... We're going right back now. We're going back to the power of his words. Knocks down everyone. Now, you have to make sure I remember all the right bits and spobs and stuff. Revealing he is God, telling them the answer is who, not what. that kind of cover it? Is there anything else in there? Yeah, Laura? So say that to me again. What, what is it? Oh. Got it. Yeah, so I, I did, yes, that's a good point. Thank you. So, so the power that knocks them down is the power that releases the followers. Which, of course, as Laura points out, Jesus has promised. So, how about this then? In these first few verses, we've got Jesus having come from this moment in prayer that's not recorded in John's Gospel, but in the other Gospels. He's come from this moment in prayer that's the agony of his soul. He's got to this place of surrender. And as he comes from this place of surrender, he gathers up the three disciples that he took with him. And then he comes back to the gathering of his disciples that was certainly including the 12 and maybe a few others because certainly the other gospels seem to suggest there's other people there as well. Gosh, I need to get a drink. It's all too exciting. And, and as Jesus comes from that place of surrender, giving his life to the will of the Father, 
The person that's betrayed him from his disciples leads a detachment of soldiers, religious figures, and others to come and arrest him. Jesus demonstrates his divinity and power by saying, I am. And as he says, I am, it knocks them to the ground. They get up again. It's kind of like Monty Python almost, isn't it? It's like... It's kind of a comical kind of scene, isn't it? Because they're there with swords and, and all kinds of stuff. You know, they're ready to kind of be the big guys here. And they just get knocked down with the word. So they, they gather themselves and, and then Jesus says, well, you know, it's me. I'm the one. And, of course, he's underlining for those who are prepared to look at the text carefully. He's saying it three times, so it's indicating, as it would do in the Scriptures, that the, the threefold revelation is the revelation of God. Here's, here's God revealing himself to them. And, and as, he, as he does that, in that authority and power, he sets his disciples free. So the power of Jesus holds back the enemy until Jesus is ready to act or to do whatever he needs to do next. In this case, surrender to their threats. So Jesus' power is able to, to hold back the enemy and set his disciples free. Yeah? Yeah? Any place in the world right now that we need the enemy to be held back? Yeah? And anybody who needs to be set free? It's not the what that's going to set you free. It's the who. So it's not how much money you have that gives you freedom. It's not, many, it's not how many people are in your life to make you feel good. That's not what's going to set you free. It's the who. It's Jesus who sets us free. And it's because of his divinity that he's able to do it. Is that a summary? All right, let's read the next few, few verses and see where we get to. Let's look at the next few verses. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants cutting off his right ear the servant's name was Malchus Jesus commanded Peter put your sword away shall I not drink the cup the father has given me then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus they bound him and brought him first to Annas who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas the high priest that year Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good for one man if he died for the people okay let's just do the same thing again a couple of minutes let's look at those verses again and we'll see what else the Lord's saying to us
Okay, let's do this. Turn to the person next to you, tell them the thing you saw. What is it you saw? Okay, so I've just put a summary statement up there of the things that I think that God was revealing to us as a community here. Jesus has power to hold back and set free. Yeah? That's really important. It's the revelation that God was bubbling up within this crucible of, of the congregation. Jesus has power to hold back and set free. That's awesome, isn't it? All right. What else is awesome? Let's hear. What did you see? Jeff. Did you see how I did that? I'm like a spring chicken. One uh, F, Jeff. Uh, mine's deeply theological, and it's the fact that we get the name of the guy who had his ear cut off. Yeah. Don't you love that? It's, you know why that is? Because it's an eyewitness account. It's an eyewitness account. And John, as you find out later on in the chapter, was known to the high priest. Yeah? And he, he knew Malchus. And of course, we know in the other story that Jesus put the ear back on. But just so easy to remember, you know, he'd put it on upside down, I think. <laughs> Don't you think? Just so he'd remember what it was. I think that would be cool if Jesus did that. Um, <laughs> okay, come on. Tell us who you are. I know who you are. I know. My name's Ashley. And um, so I was thinking about how it is about related to the sword, but how is it that um, Jesus commands Peter, so he, you know, struck him and everything, and says, put your sword away. Um, shall I not drink the cup that the Father, has, or the Father has given me? And I think how many times do we, like Simon Peter, act out of protection, thinking we're protecting whether it's our household or money or our pride, whatever it is, um, thinking that we are protecting what the Lord wants us to protect when the Lord is already like, I got it. Like, you know, this was already, it's like the already done, not yet kind of thing. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? Someone once said that um, when people speak out of fear or anger, the only thing they do is cut the ears off the people they're speaking to. Which is kind of what you're saying, isn't it, really? You know, this, it's interesting, isn't it? And it's interesting that Jesus says, put your sword away. Put your sword away. And maybe that's connected to this first little summary that we've got up there. Yeah? Hey, starting to get some stuff here. Come on. You've got to tell us who you are. My name's Joseph, and what I got was 
put your sword away, it reminded me it's not by power or might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That's cool. So, so what is it that Jesus is wanting Peter to realize? That this situation is not in his hands. This is not something, Peter, you solve. It's something that I solve. Yeah? Is that pretty much where it was, Joseph? Over here, we're coming, Stephen. How do I get to you? I've got to come through the Red Sea. Down there and, oh, God, come up here. There we are. So I, I told him who you are, but you still got to say. I'm Stephen. Um, so I want to put it together with, the, with what we were looking at previously. Um, so altogether, uh, one thing that I'm seeing is that uh, Christ is establishing himself as both prophet, or prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, he knew the soldiers were coming. King, he, used, he invoked the name of God, I am king of all things and then as priest he acted as the shepherd in protecting his flock and and making sure that the flock was set free and then in this news part I'm seeing where the um, the Pharisees are uh, establishing what was prophesied by Jeremiah that God himself only God himself will be our righteousness wow there's a whole sermon well done, Stephen. That's awesome. Round of applause for Stephen. That's a whole sermon. I mean, you've got to... So Jesus is prophet, prophet, priest, and king. And as such, he's revealing that he's the divine prophet, priest, and king by what it is that he's saying and doing. I love that. What else? Anyone else? You can shout from the balcony if you want to. We won't be able to pick it up on, okay, over there, right. So why do you give me all these difficult people to go and find, Lord? I mean, I'm not saying you're difficult. I'm saying it's difficult. To, you, know, you know what I'm saying. But you might be difficult. I don't know. Maybe I'll ask some people. Okay, tell us who you are and go. Uh, my name's Eric. Uh, so what struck me is after more than three years, Peter still didn't get it. He was still relying on his own understanding mm -hmm. and still trying to take force the outcome he wanted rather than relying on Christ. Okay. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Isn't it interesting? You know, we, we often say to ourselves, boy, it'd be a lot better. I'm sure I'd be a much stronger Christian if I was one of those who was there with Jesus all those three years. And the evidence suggests otherwise, doesn't it? In fact, Jesus says, it's better that I go away because people who believe in me not because they saw me, but because they experienced me, they're the ones that I'm looking for. It's something that needs to happen in Peter, isn't it? Yeah? And I think we're going to find out about that next week as we see the events of the denial of Peter unfold. Because I'm pretty sure Peter wasn't denying Jesus because he was a coward. I think that Peter was denying Jesus because he thought that he could fix it. Yeah? Yeah? Maybe I can find some way to spring Jesus from this situation. Yeah? That's a guy who carries a sword and cuts people's ears off. Yeah? Okay. Any other word that we've got from the passage today? All right. So let's... Um, no? Was there? Oh. Shout.
Yeah. So, so here's Caiaphas. He's the one who says it would be better for one man to die for the people. And even though he's completely in the opposite direction of God, he's going to be used by the enemy to kill Jesus. Even though he's that person, God can speak through them. Yeah? People sometimes say to me, you know, you meet with these people in coffee shops and you do a Bible study with them. And you just say to them, you know, what is it that you see in the text and what is it God saying to you? How can you say that to people who aren't believers? <laughs> well, you know, listen, if he can speak through Caiaphas, he can speak through anybody. And the point is this, this is the point. Somebody, somebody very kindly sent me a couple of, um, a couple of tracks this morning uh, in an email from two young rappers. And both of these young rappers, I think one of them was called Dax, these two young rappers were wrestling with whether they can really believe in God. They've been raised in a religious home, it would appear from the story that they're presenting in their rap. They clearly have friends who are believers because that's what they're saying in their story. But they don't know how it is that they can be sure that not only God exists, but he's, he cares about them. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. The Bible is the translation app of heaven. You ever spoken to somebody from a foreign country who speaks another language and use one of those translation apps? Yeah? And you speak into it, and then it comes out as Mandarin Chinese or whatever. You've ever seen one of those? They're amazing on your phone. The Bible is the translation app of heaven. Because God is speaking to people all the time. This is what the Bible says. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Well, everybody walks under heaven. So every day, every day, the Lord is speaking to you in a multitude of ways. He's speaking to every person on the planet in a whole host of revelations. It's just that people don't know how to interpret it. They look at the sunset and they say, isn't that cool? They look at the face of their newborn daughter and they go, isn't she wonderful? That's a, yeah, anyway, you don't know about Stevie Wonder, obviously. But here's Here's every person on the planet receiving the revelation of God and they don't know what he's saying. What's the Bible? The Bible's the translation app. And as you read the Bible, you start to understand what it is that God is saying all the time. And those feelings that you get and those pressures inside and those pictures that you, that you see and those words that you hear, it's God speaking. God is speaking to you in the way that he designed you to communicate. Human beings, and this is now accepted fact, it's not a kind of a, a theory that you put out there and may or may not be true. This is an accepted reality. 70%, the minimum is this, the minimum of 70% of the, 
of what human beings say to one another is in nonverbal communication. Yeah? Everybody's heard that? Nonverbal communication is the majority of human communication. If we're made by God, the majority of communication from Him surely is nonverbal. Yeah? Maybe the verbal bit is to translate all of the other bits. So here's, here's Jesus. He's about to be taken away and sentenced, tortured, and killed on our behalf. And Jesus has now reconciled within himself his emotional and physical reaction to that prospect and is able to step into this situation and say to Peter, stop reacting like this. I don't want you to react out of the first thing that comes into your head or your heart. I want you to be aware of the fact that the one who just knocked down these people doesn't need your sword to help me. The one whose word is setting you free from captivity by these men is the one and whose word can do pretty much whatever he needs to do. It's really important that we get this, I think, because you know one of the things that, that happens in churches and in communities in general is that we we tend to make reactions and then other people react and then in that course of reactions we find ourselves in a place that we don't want to be. What Jesus wants, I believe, is to ask us to pause, to consider and to recognize that he's in charge and because he's in charge we don't have to react the way that we usually do. Yeah? yeah? All right. That was me kind of getting into a bit of preaching mode there. Sorry about that. I hope that's okay. So, let's, uh, let's just look at what it was that we had. Just remind me again. Just shout it out. The first thing. I'm paused for a moment. What is it? The sword? Yeah? Is it, is it put away your sword? That was the first thing we looked at, was it? Yeah? Put away your defense mechanism. Is that right? Is that a, is that a summary of what we heard? Put away your defense mechanism because there's someone here who's defending you. What else we got? Jesus has the power to hold back and set free. We've got that up there, yeah. Yeah. So he's revealing 
He is all we need. The prophet, the priest, and the king. Is that fair, Stephen? He's all we need? Cool. Got a thumbs up from Stephen. That's a good thing. What else? Yeah, so we spoke about the Caiaphas, the high priest. So God can speak through. I'm going to spell through like that. I know there are English teachers here who think it's terrible. God can speak through anyone. Yeah? Good. The high priest forever. Yeah. So Caiaphas is the high priest that year, John says. That year he's the high priest, but Jesus is the high priest for every year. Yeah? He's the one that stands between us and God. So let me just try to put together what it is that I feel like the Lord is saying to me today. What I feel like the Lord is saying to me is that I need to recognize that in the midst of an anxious world, in the midst of a world that looks incredibly dark, in a world that looks like it's armed for battle and ready to betray, Jesus has the power to hold back and to set free. Now I don't know how you feel about the world that you see portrayed on your small screen or big screen. I don't know what it is you feel about your life in general, but in general, all of us need something to be held back and something to be set free. Ask yourself right now, what is it you need to to ask Jesus to hold back? What feels like it's a predatory presence in your life? Is it, the, is it the feeling of encroaching debt? What feels like a predatory presence in your life? Is it, is it some people who really are unkind and really poorly disposed towards you? Is it that you feel put down because of who you are? What is it that you need to hold back in your life? So often we'll focus on the what rather than the who. It's the who that holds back. And it's the who that sets free. And this is what Jesus says to you. In the face of the darkness, put away your sword. Put away your sword. He's got a sword. And he's able to use it and even put it into our hands, but it's a different kind of sword. Put away your sword. Put away your desire to defend or attack. Put those those mechanisms away. In general, this is the way I am. I don't know whether it's like you. When I feel threatened... When I feel ashamed, when I feel guilty or afraid, 
I generally pick up a sword. Anybody else do that? Yeah? Jesus says, put your sword down. Put your sword down because I defend you. I'm the one who takes care of you. I'm the one who's going to lead you. I'm the one who's going to transform the circumstances on your behalf. I can hold back. Where do you need to be set free? Do you need to be set free so that you've got greater economic independence? Do you need to be set free so that the people who seem to be controlling your life are no longer controlling it? Do you need to be set free because of the social conditions of your life mean that people look at you in a particular way? Where do you need to be set free? It's not the what, it's the who. And the people who are most free are the people who are free on the inside. And being free on the inside means that you become free on the outside. Physical circumstances can feel like they hold you back. Emotional circumstances can feel like they hold you back. Forms of illness and and struggle that you have with other people and individuals feel like they can hold you back. Jesus says, let them go free. And he says that to you and me. And Jesus, Jesus says this, I can speak through anyone. And so I can speak to you. Do you feel like you're in the dark night of the soul? Do you feel as though the things that you hear from other people, maybe you heard some things from people this morning and you thought, I don't know, I never get stuff like that. Maybe you feel, maybe you feel inadequate in the presence of other people because you think that hearing God has got something to do with educational ability. Maybe you think it's got something to do with the fact that maybe, you know, I've gone away and I've studied theology and I've got all of these kinds of theological insights that means that I hear God better. Would anybody really believe that? Because here's the thing. If he's speaking through Caiaphas, it's not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon him. God speaking and us hearing is not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon him. And unless he's changed his character, unless he's changed his character, he wants to talk to you. What is the name given to Jesus at the beginning of John's gospel? Louder. Everybody. The Word. Jesus is the Word. That means, at the very minimum, that Jesus is in the business of communicating all the time. It's his job. It's what he commits himself to. And if the word is the thing that holds back and sets free, then we need to get into the program, don't we? 
So, you know, folks say to me, well, you know, I, I read the Bible and I don't know, I mean, I don't know whether it's, well, how about you, how about you approach the Bible like this? God's been speaking to me the whole day. I just don't know what it is. He's been speaking to me this whole week. I just can't work it out. God's been speaking to me my whole life. I just can't quite draw out the threads. Does it matter which part of the Bible you read? No. Does it, does it concern God which part of the translation app you open? No. Because the scriptures can make clear to you if you will just let Jesus speak. Just let him speak. And the way I think that we can best do that is simply stay with the thing that as we read the text jumps up at us. Whatever it is. Whatever it is, just stay with it. And allow that to be the thing that begins to transform and change you. I was speaking to the young guy that I'm doing at Discovery Bible uh, with in Starbucks on, uh, on Thursday. And, um, and we, were, we were talking away and he, he was saying, you know, in, in the spiritual life, I feel like God is wanting to make space in me so that he can do something. Now, this is a person, you know, from like no Christian context. And I said, yes, space and time are really interesting, aren't they? Because the way that Jesus deals with space and time is that he's about making a place for him to be able to do things. He puts it like this. The time, and it's the kind of time that's a space, an opening, an opportunity. The opportunity, the space, the time is right. The kingdom, what God wants to do in your life, is right here. What you need to do is to repent and believe. So this morning, what is it that I would encourage you to do? This is my encouragement to you. As God has spoken to you this morning, repent and believe. What does that mean? It means turn your heart and mind towards the possibility that God is right about his assessment of you. God is right about his desire to show you his love. God is correct in the way that he wants to guide you and lead you. God is actually speaking to you right now and you're prepared to turn towards that possibility and in turning towards that possibility, you're prepared to believe what it is that he says. If we began doing that, our life would be much different than what it has been and what it would be if we didn't make that decision. And the big differences are these. We wouldn't keep on carrying our sword and we wouldn't still be contained 
by the chains that hold us. Because Jesus says, put down your sword, set them free. Anybody want some chains to be removed? Sure. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is what I've noticed. And this is just me saying this from a pastoral point of view. I've been doing this for a lifetime, 40 years. This is what I've noticed. We put down our sword, but we want it to be in reach. Just in case. I know I used to do this when I wasn't a believer. So I'm not going to do it anymore. But just in case. And here's the other thing I've noticed. The things that have defined us and contained us and controlled us and removed our liberty have been broken when we've come to know Jesus. But because we've become so familiar with them, we carry the chains anyway. We don't have the chains attached to us anymore. But because those chains are the thing that helped us understand who we were, we carry the chains anyway. And so we define ourselves by our history. We define ourselves by our story. We define ourselves by the burdens that we've carried up to this point. We define ourselves by the negative image. We define ourselves by the old story because at least we have comfort in understanding that story. The new story seems so dangerous, so scary, so unfamiliar. But to engage with the new story, we have to detach from the old story. So put the chains down. You're not defined by the way that you used to be. You're not stupid. You're not ugly. You're not uncaring, a difficult person. You're not that person. And I know that you've heard this from people. And I know that it's been reinforced. And I know that the world has helped to kind of reinforce that because it's much easier for the world to have you in a category that it understands. You're none of those things. Put the chain down. Because Jesus says, be free. Be free. And it was that word that he spoke that had the power to hold back the darkness. That was the same power that was available to the disciples in their freedom and it's the same power that will help you with your defense mechanisms that cause you to reach for the sword you can put it down and when you pick it up okay I pick up my sword a lot yeah I have to go and look for it in the cupboard sometimes but we can put it down again 
So, as we have this last part of our time together, this, this time of worship, let's allow the Lord Jesus, the one who, with his very word, speaks to the darkness and knocks it down. Let's allow the word of Jesus that we've heard through the translation app of heaven today, that he's been speaking to your heart all these days, months, and years. Let's allow the word of Jesus to produce the very thing that it always produces, which is faith, faith that moves mountains. And let's expect right now as we receive this word and we receive this understanding of how to receive this word, let's, let's assume that we're on the path to freedom, that we're on the path of freedom away from the darkness that Jesus holds back and the chains that have contained and conditioned us. Amen.